On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Debbie Tudor about scapegoats, narcissists, and dual diagnosis. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. With me today, I have Debbie Tudor, and we are going to talk about scapegoats, narcissists, dual diagnosis, and more. But before we get to that, if you want to be a guest on our sister show, on our Survivor Story show, please go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. At the top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Press that button and we will go from there. Also, everyone, in a couple of weeks, maybe actually three weeks, let's say, we are going to be uh, launching our own social network, our own community support page, forum board, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's going to, it's integrated with Zoom. We're going to be doing our regular meetings, which are Wednesdays and Saturdays. Depending on how many new people we get, we might be opening up more. Uh, we'll have our support pages there, ad-free episodes. Our all of our bonus episodes will be there. Workbooks will be there for every episode. We're working as fast as we can to get them all up. Uh, as you know, we're we're working hard over here, and we're going to be having worksheets as far as self-esteem and and all those things. So we want to help people heal. We want to give support, and we're also going to be doing fun things on there too. We're going to be doing closure ceremonies, no contact ceremonies. We have a lot of interesting, fun ideas we're going to do to help really foster our community. So we're not just there to support each other. We're there to make friends. So keep an eye out for emails on that. And uh, let's see here. I think that's it for this week. You know, So this is my conversation with Debbie Tudor. We discussed Scapegoat. She is an expert when it comes to adult children of narcissists. And we'll put all of her information in the show notes for this show. And, you know, Debbie is a long supporter of the show, a friend of the show, and I just want to thank her for taking part once again. And now without further ado, here is my episode with Debbie Tudor. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. With me today is the return of Debbie Tudor. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well, and for those of you that do not know, Debbie Tudor is a licensed professional counselor supervisor and certified narcissist abuse recovery coach, and she is worldwide, and you can email her at info at rockwall-counseling.com, and her website is rockwall-counseling.com. Uh, Debbie is the author of It's Not You, It's Them, 30 Days of Hope and Help for the Adult Child of a Narcissist, Narcissistic Parent, and that is a workbook, and then she also has Divine Relaxation, and that is an iTunes download for anxiety, insomnia, and pain management issues. You have been on our show a couple of times. You have discussed 
uh, adult children of narcissists. We, I think, answer like the top five questions that uh, have that you get from your clients on the show. We discussed a lot of stuff in the early show, just about you know scapegoating and, and what to do as an, an adult child and how you can interact. And you had a genius little method that you called because uh, there was gray rock, and then you have something else that was called I forget off the top of my head. Protected contact. Protected contact. So I, th- those episodes, we'll repost them so people can listen to those as well. And today we are going to discuss uh, dual diagnosis. We are going to discuss um, you know, how to diagnose a narcissist when you are a counselor. And we are also going to uh, discuss breaking generational trauma. So I just want to thank you for being here today. And, you know, a, a one last thing before we begin for everyone who's listening, uh, you know, there's a lot of triggering content uh, on this episode. So I just want to let everyone know because they are, we're going to be talking about adult victims of child abuse. So now without that all out of the way, uh, I guess my first question to you is how do you uncover dual diagnosis or abuse situations with your clients? And then I guess also explain what dual diagnosis is. Well, dual diagnosis is also is called comorbidity in um, the DSM. And it just means that you have more than one issue or challenge going on um, for the narcissist, I'll name several dual diagnoses that happen with them and for the scapegoat. But what happens with, since I treat the scapegoat, I uh, use uh, a certain questionnaire, clinical questionnaire called the Adver- Ad- I'm sorry, Adverse Childhood Experience, the ACE questionnaire. And basically it asks the client, did a parent or other adult swear at you, insult you, put you down, humiliate you, threaten you? Did they push, grab, slap, or throw something at you or injure you? Did they touch your body in a sexual way? Did they make you feel like you were not important, not special? Did you have enough to eat? Did you wear dirty clothes? Um, Were your parents too drunk or high to take care of you? Um, Were your parents separated or divorced? Was your mother or stepmother pushed, grabbed, or had something thrown? In other words, did you witness violence in the home? Um, Did you live with a problem drinker or alcoholic or someone who used street drugs? And was their household member depressed or mentally ill? Or did someone attempt suicide? And there's a scoring on those that I use to determine how much these issues they suffered would would affect them in adulthood. So we start with that, and that gives me an idea if we have a um, comorbidity or a dual diagnosis going on. So for the scapegoat, the diagnosis of scapegoat, um, basically, it's well, it's covered in my book, but the basic idea is that you are the one in the family that everybody says is the problem. Everything that's wrong in the family, you are the problem. Um, the scapegoat is chosen to be the problem so that the family doesn't have to look at what else is going on in the family. So that's the scapegoat diagnosis. Um, most people who contact me and say, I think I'm the scapegoat, have been right, um, primarily because the scapegoat is the only one who gets help. 
in the family. Um, no one else ever really faces what's going on. But what I see as a dual diagnosis with for the scapegoat um, includes these things. Depression. Scapegoats are often depressed. They have poor self-esteem. They tell me that they their words don't matter. They don't have the right to say no. The basic human rights that the rest of us take for granted. The scapegoat also, also has a dual diagnosis of scapegoat and anxiety. Uh, they say things like, I can't, I'm stuck, I can't leave them, I have to be part of their life. And there's a reason for that. Um, when a scapegoat is a child in a dangerous situation, they really are stuck and they really are victims. And that feeling of survival, I, I just have to survive, is so deep and inherent inside of us that even when we grow up and we know that we could live without contact with our abuser or our narcissist, we still feel obligated. We still feel pressure to stay in contact. And some of the most vicious, abusive narcissists that I've ever heard of have scapegoats who cannot let them go, who cannot feel they have the right to live without contact. So that anxiety is often diagnosed with scapegoat. And um, PTSD is another clinical diagnosis that goes with scapegoat. Um, this requires actual danger. Um, you hear about it because of war veterans. But some people are raised in the most Vietnam situation that you can imagine. Um, they fight for their lives every day as children, and nobody helps them. So PTSD is common with my dual diagnosis patients. Um, they grew up being hit. I had a client who talked to me about her father holding her down and choking her. Other clients have told me about having things thrown at them. And if it wasn't directly abuse to them, it was abuse to their other parent. And they knew what would happen if you crossed the narcissist. It would be violent, and it could cost you your life. Now, there's a real blindness in our society. We don't like to see that parents will do such a thing, but they do, and they do it a lot. And often the narcissist does this, and the scapegoat with PTSD doesn't get help because nobody listened to them as a child. Teachers, police, I've heard story after story of children calling the police on their parents when they were choking them or hitting them, and the police coming out and blaming the child or the being charmed by the narcissist who laughed it off. And then eating disorders. Um, if a child grows up having to please a parent by being skinny, and getting constant body disapproval. I had a client years ago who had to be skinny to be loved. If she put on any weight, her father would punish her, would not speak to her. Um, she had constant body disapproval from the narcissist, which causes something we call body dysmorphia, which is where you don't see yourself the way you really are in the mirror. You see yourself as huge, and you stay that way no matter how much weight you lose. You, you can't see yourself the way you really are. And that's caused by having a narcissist in the family who constantly belittles you, says that you, you're big or fat or something like that. 
I had a client years ago whose father was a um, plastic surgeon and was constantly on her, you should get a nose job, you're fat when she was 12 years old, things like that. And then not a clinical diagnosis, but codependency happens a lot when you grow up as a scapegoat. And codependency says others come first. I don't matter. If someone's mad at me, what did I do wrong? It couldn't be that they're out of line. It's just it must be my fault. And the reason a child becomes codependent when they live with a narcissist is because the enabler, the other parent, says, just just be quiet, just go along, just don't argue. And so they learn real quickly to put their own needs aside. So those are the basic dual diagnoses with the scapegoat. And when you have a dual diagnosis, where do you begin? Which problem do you start with? The first thing I do is make sure they are safe. And this is where a clinical therapist who is licensed really makes the difference. Um, there are basic safety things that we go through. Um, we immediately start working on the depression, anxiety, the clinical issues. And that is priority, is immediate safety. And often I will refer somebody to a local therapist if I feel like there's any chance of self-harm. But we always start with the most severe thing, which is usually depression and anxiety. My Divine Relaxation iTunes download, which is D-E-V-I-N-E. I know that's confusing to people, but that used to be my last name. So we start with a Divine Relaxation. We get the anxiety in hand. Um, that's the first thing you do is get a handle on the clinical issues. And, you know, when it comes to a scapegoat, you know, I've talked to ones that thrive. I've talked to ones that have learned helplessness in a way. It does. It, when I've talked to people, it, it, it seemed to be rare that there was someone in the middle. Um, you know, I, I guess in, in your opinion, uh, when it comes to this, I guess what's the most prevalent thing when it comes to the scapegoat that they are that they become an overachiever in life or is it you know the opposite direction no you're definitely right it's overachiever um we are the ones who go to college and make the better grades and get the good jobs and that uh, just with almost without exception all of my scapegoat clients are um kick-ass people they've done the work to get the job, and they're amazing in the workplace. They do just fine there. It's in their personal lives that they turn into people who are helpless. Mm-hmm. I have um, I've had clients in the past who write for the New York Times, but their personal life is extremely abusive. They allow abuse, and they are crippled in their personal life at setting any kind of boundaries. So when it comes to the diagnosis of a narcissist and, you know, because, you know, the word gets thrown around a lot lately. And even on the show, I use a very loose definition of of what a narcissist is. How do you go about or how does someone go about um, getting an, an official diagnosis? Well, the only way to have a real diagnosis of a narcissist is a personal interview. And as clinicians, we are cautioned about that. We, we cannot diagnose someone by listening to a description. Um, so 
they have to be interviewed. But I'll tell you something, that doesn't happen because the, the hallmark of a narcissist is they do not believe that they're doing anything wrong. They just simply think that everyone else should just fall into line. Their egos are so fragile they could not possibly do the work therapy. But the characteristics can be identified, and it's a spectrum. You can be a little bit narcissist, and all of us have a trait or two, or a whole lot narcissist or anywhere in between. But basically, the DSM describes it as, it's very long and complicated, but to sum it up, it's a pattern of grandiosity, a need for admiration, a lack of empathy. They exaggerate their achievements and talents. They believe they are special and entitled, like demanding excessive service in a restaurant. They believe others are envious of them, and they show arrogant, haughty behaviors. And my definition for the narcissistic parent, and this is what I work with as children of narcissists, is that they wear their children like jewelry. Your job in life is to make me look good. And in my book, there's a whole work page about wearing how that you feel like your sole purpose in life is to show off. What's confusing about that is that they brag on you to others because that's your job to make them look good. But then in private, you're getting criticized and beaten, <laughs> beaten up either verbally or in some cases physically. Um, I've had clients who I had one client in particular I'm thinking of who had to get straight A's. She had to win at, at her music contest or she would be beaten heavily when she got home. Now that is a dual diagnosis of the parent of psychotism or intermittent explosive disorder. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But basically that's the narcissist description. And again, a narcissist cannot be labeled that way officially by anyone but a therapist doing a personal interview. And I guess what are the um, traits we are looking out for when, if we were to do our own, you know, pathology of a narcissist? Well, the grandiosity, um, the complete lack of empathy. Um, they must be admired all, at all times. They exaggerate their achievements. They are believe they are special, and they're never wrong. They will not ever say, I'm sorry, unless they say, I'm sorry, but, which, by the way, when you follow an apology with the word but, you've completely negated the apology, but you made me do it, but you just... You just are acting so badly, I just couldn't help but be upset and hit you. I mean, it's just typical. Mm-hmm. Cannot handle apologizing is one of the biggest ones. And then the whole thing of showing you off to others and then secretly belittling you and saying how disappointed they are in you. So what is an example of a diagnosis of a narcissist, but is also a dual diagnosis? Well, a narcissist can have any of these following DSM traits. And um, the first one that I want to talk about is an alcohol or a substance abuse disorder. So um, the reason that is so hard on the scapegoat for, well, for reasons you can obviously imagine, but what my 
dual diagnosis scapegoat, the children of these people tell me is that when they get drunk, they are completely losing their filter. Um, they'll say things to the child like, I shouldn't have had you. You're the reason I drink. Um, so it's especially damaging, besides the fact that it's extremely dangerous for a child to be in the care of someone who is inebriated. So that is a comorbidity that I see a lot uh, that are, is reported to me by my scapegoated patients. Um, the body dysmorphia, we talked about that. Um, if they, you can be a narcissist but also be constantly critical of your body, secretly critical, not ever to anyone. And that focus and obsession is handed down to the children. Um, the antisocial personality disorder is probably the most common one. It's um, keep the family secrets. You're not allowed to tell anybody that I have sex with you or that I've hit you. Um, you don't need anybody out there. Uh, one of my clients was told, you don't need friends. You have me. And the antisocial anxiety disorder has a subcategory of sociopath and psychopath. And those um, are kind of used interchangeably for someone who has antisocial personality disorder. But basically, they sound a lot like a narcissist in that they don't respect the social norms. They don't have personal boundaries. They lie. They deceive. They use others. Um, they're aggressive, get into fights. They will hit children um, easily. They um, don't follow up on their responsibilities. And mostly they don't feel any kind of guilt or remorse for the terrible things they do to their children. Um, they can be very cold and punished by a child by silence. The most severe weapon you can use against a child is the fear of abandonment. Nothing works more than the fear of abandonment. And so they get, they punish the child by not speaking to them for days or weeks. They um, manipulate people. They uh, try to intimidate and threaten people. They um, threaten suicide. I hear this one a whole lot. Um, threatening suicide is a very dramatic way to control a child and get them to do what they want and to keep secrets. Um, again, that has to be um, evaluated in person, although input from other people can help us diagnose that. Um, so that's really, when you hear people talk about sociopath, psychopath, it really falls under the antisocial personality disorder. And that is the most serious personality. Strangely enough, there is not a diagnosis for a child molester. There is not a diagnosis for people who hit children other than kind of piecing together things like antisocial personality disorder and rage disorder, things like that. So that one is one. Um, the psychotic Psychotism or the intermittent explosive disorder is where they throw children against the wall. They're unpredictable. They go from calm to explosive in seconds. 
Um, this, of course, is extremely dangerous, and a lot of my clients have reported injuries so severe that the parent takes them to the emergency room over and over, and the doctors never catch it. Um, I had one client who's the doctor told her after her third visit, um, your dad says you're jumping on the bed, and if you don't stop jumping on the bed, I'm going to quit treating you. It's just a blindness we have in our society. And the narcissist is so good at charming and convincing other people. So they get away with a lot. A rigid perfectionism is a diagnosis that um, really hurts the child when a narcissist has that as a comorbidity. You must make me look good. Um, you must do the things that people will see. You must be skinny enough, smart enough, athletic enough. And again, the consequences if a child isn't perfect, are severe. And one of the strangest ones is porn addiction. If a narcissist has a comorbidity of porn addiction, they have no problem with showing porn to the children. Um, I had one client tell me years ago that she brought her fiancé home and her father opened the screen and started showing him porn in front of his daughter this is pretty typical. Um, so those are pretty, of course, very serious ones. Um, child abuse affects a client forever. There, there's a really, really, I can't even say that you heal from being molested. Um, you learn to live and to cope and to learn it's not your fault. But it's extremely, extremely serious. I find it interesting that even in religion, um, in the Bible, which, you know, Jesus talks about love and forgive and all that, but not with child abuse. He says that if any of you hurt even one of my little children, it would be better for you to have a millstone around your neck and be at the bottom of the ocean. That's because child abuse has lifelong consequences for the child. And then some of the stranger uh, co comorbidity, um, dual diagnoses. I've talked to people whose parent was a narcissist and would, was a hoarder involving animals. And with animal hoarding, they have total disregard for the animal suffering. They keep animals. I had one um, client whose father was a scientist, and he kept animals in cages on the kitchen counter, and the scapegoat had to remove the dead ones periodically. Um, and, of course, the fact that they were living in filth and then just the whole trauma of a child having to do that. And then I've talked about the child abuse. Um, I had a patient that father was a doctor, and he would torture her with shots. So these are um, serious, serious things that the scapegoated child as an adult, has to deal with and overcome. So we not only have to overcome the fact that you were blamed for everything, but we have to overcome the abuse as well. And it's a complicated situation. And when these situations are going on, you, you might have one parent who is scared themselves and, and doesn't know 
what to do in these situations, especially when, when one of the children is being scapegoated. That scapegoated child might feel that the other parent has abandoned them in, in this situation. So for those parents that are listening who are the um, non-disordered parent who might be living in fear, you know, they still might be in the relationship and haven't pulled the whole family out of it. Is there a way they can help uh, the scapegoated child in this process while it's going on? No, there really isn't. The only way to help a child is to get help and to get them out of it. And I would rather see a child and a spouse in a shelter than I would to see them go one more day because when you expose a child to this, it doesn't matter what you say to them. Your actions say you're not worth my fear of getting out. And so there's really the only way to help them is to conquer your fear, to get out, to go to a friend or a family or a shelter where you can be hidden. But... To live in that is to, uh, what is the word I want to use, is to abet and enable the situation. And believe me, trying to recover from the fact that my mother knew what he was doing to me and she didn't do anything about it, it doesn't help that mother was scared. It doesn't help because the adult is responsible for the welfare of the child and not only the adult that his is doing the abuse, but also the child, adult who allows the abuse. Sorry, that's a hard line. I realize it, but it's the truth. There is no way to make it better and live in that situation. So does a scapegoated child try to give excuses to their parent? Yes, that's very common. Um, they they tell me that my parent had a bad childhood and they give me lengthy descriptions of their parents' childhood. And the problem with that is that the scapegoat has also had a nightmare childhood, and they didn't turn out to be an abuser. And so to me, there is a strong element of choice here. Um, if I have behaviors that's hurting someone else, I go get help. And if I don't go get help, then that's on me. I often tell people your bad childhood or your parents' bad childhood was the parents' responsibility. But what you do in as, as an adult is your responsibility. And a scapegoat comes to me and says, I don't want to be this kind of parent. I'm going to get help with you. And that is the same choice that other people can have. So, um, I have an exercise in my book on day 29 about this, and they. the problem is that when a scapegoat tries to excuse their parent or make excuses for how horribly they've been tr treated, they are really trying to distract themselves from working on themselves, and that's classic scapegoat behavior. Well, let's not talk about me and my pain. Let's talk about my parent and how painful he had it as a child. And it's just a distraction. It doesn't get you anywhere. Um, and then it's also a way to push away the responsibility that the parent had. And a lot of people have a hard time realizing that the enabler was is also equally guilty 
because they allowed this. At the end of the day, they allowed everything that happened to the scapegoat. And so they make excuses for them as well. Um, unless there is a gun to your head, if you are not handicapped, if you are mentally able, then you can't get out. And that's just what must happen if we're to break the cycle. And talking about this cycle, we have generational trauma. And, you know, this could be going on for hundreds of years, the, the, you know, from one family to another, to another, to another. And now a scapegoat shows up in your office and wants to break that cycle. And they're, you know, they're having trouble doing the work, I guess. So how do you, you know, when you, when you run into someone who is, you know, not uh, giving you, uh, what's the best word I'm looking for? Resistance, or they're, or they're giving you a little bit of resistance. I, I guess, how do you kind of ease them into doing the work and going about it? And, and, and what is the work? Well, I have the greatest respect for people's resistance because what it is, is a childhood survival skill. Um, if they had looked at their life the way it was as a child and had fought back, then they could have died. And many of them did fight back, and many of them did almost die. Um, so I have a great respect for the tendency to resist, seeing it for what it is, and addressing the pain. Um, I work with people at their own pace. If they are not ready to leave, we don't talk about leaving. If they are not ready to admit that their enabler mother sat back and watched it happen, then we don't go there. And people, everyone's different. And some people gain a few skills, and then that's as far as they want to go. Some people plunge all the way in. Um, childhood abuse and being raised by a narcissist is like a systemic poison. It's like you've got a terrible wound and it's infected and it's coursing through your entire body with the poison. But to survive, you put a pretty white bandage on that and you just hope that it's there's nothing going on under that bandage. The work we do peels back the bandage and exposes the wound and the poison to light and air. And when a wound is healing, it is painful as hell. So... Some people aren't ready for that, and that's okay. I just give them a few basic skills. We work on some things to handle depression. We talk about exercise and journaling and things like that. Some people want to ride that train all the way, and they will go into the memories. They will feel the feelings, and they come out healthier and stronger on the other side. And everybody is different. What is so curious for most of us is why do they stay? Why does a victim stay in contact with that father who raped her repeatedly or that mother who threatened to chop off her fingers with a knife? You just, it's hard for the average person to understand. But that's also because being abandoned as a child is even scarier than being hurt by the parent because we're not able to feed ourselves. We're not able to pay rent as a child. We are totally dependent on that parent approving of us and that's why it's so difficult plus society puts huge pressure on us to put family first 
family first. Mother's Day, Father's Day, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You're supposed to keep the pretty little flowers of, and hearts going for those holidays. But, you know, I often remind my, my clients that true family is the people who have your back, who treat you with respect and not necessarily the ones with whom you share blood and genetics. So breaking free from those people is possible when you realize you don't need them anymore. You're buying your own food. You're paying your own rent. You're, you're just fine without them. And we gently, gently disable that survivor instinct that says, I got to cling, I got to cling. So for the scapegoat to break that hundreds of years cycle is an awesome thing. And it's my privilege to work with people to do that so that their children and they even don't have to suffer the rest of their lives out of this blind obedience to the family. They are going to be the generation that says no more. And scapegoats are the only ones in the family to break it. They are the ones who go to counseling and they get help and they break the cycle. And it's so exciting. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for being here with me, all of us here today. I know you're going to help a lot of people. And, you know, for everyone who is listening, Debbie can be found at info at rockwall-counseling.com. That is her email and her website is rockwall counseling.com. Everything will be in the show notes. You should also get her workbook, which is It's Not You, It's Them, 30 Days of Hope and Help for the Adult Child of a Narcissistic Parent. And she also has Divine Relaxation, which is on an iTunes. It's a download for anxiety, insomnia, and pain management issues. Debbie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Appreciate it. You are welcome. And for everyone who is listening from Debbie and I, I hope or we hope you have a good night.